Chapter Six of the Permanent Husband by Fyodor Dostoevsky. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Are you feeling faint? asked Velchaninoff of his companion, frightened out of his wits. I'll tell him to stop and get you some water, shall I? She looked at him angrily and reproachfully. Where are you taking me to? she asked coldly and abruptly. To a very beautiful house, Liza. There are plenty of children. They all love you there. They are so kind. Don't be angry with me, Liza. I wish you well, you know. In truth, Velchaninoff would have looked strange at this moment to any acquaintance, if such had happened to see him. How, 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 oh, how wicked you are! said Liza, fighting with suppressed tears, and flashing her fine angry eyes at him. But, Liza, I— you are bad, bad, and wicked!" cried Liza. She wrung her hands. Velchaninoff was beside himself. "'Oh, Liza, Liza, if only you knew what despair you are causing me!' he said. "'Is it true that he is coming down to-morrow?' asked the child haughtily. "'Is it true or not?' "'Quite true. I shall bring him down myself. I shall take him and bring him.' "'He will deceive you somehow!' cried the child, drooping her eyes. "'Doesn't he love you, then, Liza?' "'No. Has he ill-treated you, has he?' Liza looked gloomily at her questioner, and said nothing. She then turned away from him, and sat still and depressed. Velchaninoff commenced to talk. He tried to win her. He spoke warmly, excitedly, feverishly. Liza listened incredulously and with a hostile air, but still she listened. Her attention delighted him beyond measure. He went so far as to explain to her what it meant when a man took to drink. He said that he loved her and would himself look after her father. At last Liza raised her eyes and gazed fixedly at him. Then Velchaninoff began to speak of her mother, and of how well he had known her. And he saw that his tales attracted her. Little by little she began to reply to his questions, but very cautiously and in an obstinately monosyllabic way. She would answer nothing to his chief inquiries. As to her former relations with her father, for instance, she maintained an obstinate silence. While speaking to her, Velchaninoff held the child's hand in his own, as before, and she did not try to take it away. Liza said enough to make it apparent that she had loved her father more than her mother at first, because her father had loved the child better than her mother did. But that when her mother had died and was lying dead, Liza wept over her and kissed her, and ever since then she had loved her mother more than all, all there was in the whole world, and that every night she thought of her and loved her. But Liza was very proud and suddenly recollecting herself, and finding that she was saying a great deal more than she had meant to reveal, she paused and relapsed into obstinate silence once more, and gazed at Velchaninoff with something like hatred in her eyes, considering that he had beguiled her into the revelations just made. By the end of the journey, however, her hysterical condition was nearly over but she was very silent and sat looking morosely about her, obstinately silent and gloomy, like a little wild animal. The fact that she was being taken to a strange house, where she had never been before, did not seem so far to weigh upon her. 
Belchaninov saw clearly enough that other things distressed her, and principally that she was ashamed, ashamed that her father should have let her go so easily, thrown her away, as it were, into Velchaninoff's arms. "'She's ill,' thought the latter, "'and perhaps very ill. She has been bullied and ill-treated. Oh, that drunken, black-guardedly wretch of a fellow!' He hurried on the coachman. Velchaninoff trusted greatly to the fresh air, to the garden, to the children, to the new life now. As to the future, he was in no sort of doubt at all. His hopes were clear and defined. One thing he was quite sure of, and that was that he had never before felt what now swelled within his soul, and that the sensation would last for ever. "'I have an object at last. This is life,' he said to himself enthusiastically. Many thoughts welled into his brain just now, but he would have none of them. He did not care to think of details at this moment, for without details the future was all so clear and so beautiful, and so safe and indestructible. The basis of his plan was simple enough. It was simply this, in the language of his own thoughts. I shall so work upon that drunken little blackguard that he will leave Liza with the Pogoryeltsevs, and go away alone, at first. For a time, of course. And so Liza shall remain behind for me. What more do I want? The plan will suit him, too. Why else does he bully her like this? The carriage arrived at last. It was certainly a very beautiful place. They were met first of all by a troop of noisy children who overflowed on to the front door steps. Belchaninoff had not been down for some time, and the delight of the little ones to see him was excessive. They were very fond of him. The elder ones shouted, before he had left the carriage, by way of chaff, "'How's the lawsuit getting on, eh?' And the smaller gang took up the joke, and all clamoured the same question. It was a pet joke in this establishment to chaff Velchaninoff about his lawsuit. But when Liza climbed down the carriage steps, she was instantly surrounded and stared at with true juvenile curiosity. Then Claudia Petrovna and her husband came out, and both of them good-humouredly bantered Velchaninoff about his lawsuit. Claudia Petrovna was a lady of some thirty-seven summers, stout and well-favoured, and with a sweet, fresh-looking face. Her husband was a man of fifty-five, a clever and long-headed man of the world, but above all a good and kind-hearted friend to any one requiring kindness. The Pogoryeltsev's house was in the full sense of the word a home to Velchaninoff, as the latter had stated. There was rather more here, however, for, twenty years since Claudia had very nearly married young Velchaninoff almost a boy at that time, and a student at the university. This had been his first experience of love, and very hot and fiery and funny and sweet it was. The end of it was, however, that Claudia married Mr. Pogoryeltsev. Five years later she and Velchaninoff had met again, and a quiet, candid friendship had sprung up between them. Since then there had always been a warmth, a specialty about their friendship, a radiance which overspread it and glorified their relations one to the other. There was nothing here that Velchaninoff could remember with shame. All was pure and sweet. And this was perhaps the reason why the friendship was specially dear to Velchaninoff. He had not experienced many such platonic intimacies. 
In this house Velchaninoff was simple and happy, confessed his sins, played with the children and lectured them, and never bothered his head about outside matters. He had promised the Pogoryeltsevs that he would live a few more years alone in the world, and then move over to their household for good and all. And he looked forward to that good time coming with all seriousness. Velchaninoff now gave all the information about Liza which he thought fit, though his simple request would have been amply sufficient here. Claudia Petrovna kissed the little orphan and promised to do all she possibly could for her and the children carried Liza off to play in the garden. Half an hour passed in conversation, and then Velchaninoff rose to depart. He was in such a hurry that his friends could not help remarking upon the fact. He had not been near them for three weeks, they said, and now he only stayed half an hour. Velchaninoff laughed and promised to come down to-morrow. Someone observed that Velchaninoff's state of agitation was remarkable, even for him whereupon the latter jumped up, seized Claudia Petrovna's hand, and, under pretense of having forgotten to tell her something most important about Liza, he led her into another room. "'Do you remember,' he began, "'what I told you, and only you, even your husband does not know of it, about my year of life down at tea?' "'Oh, yes, only too well. You have often spoken of it.' no i did not speak about it i confessed and only to yourself but i never told you the lady's name it was trusotsky the wife of this trusotsky it is she who has died and this little liza is her child my child is this certain are you quite sure there is no mistake asked claudia petrovna with some agitation quite quite certain said Velchaninoff enthusiastically. He then gave a short, hasty, and excited narrative of all that had occurred. Claudia had heard it all before, excepting the lady's name. The fact is, Velchaninoff had always been so afraid that one of his friends might some day meet Madame Trusotsky at tea, and wonder how in the world he could have loved such a woman as that, that he had never revealed her name to a single soul not even to Claudia Petrovna, his great friend. "'And does the father know nothing of it?' asked Claudia, having heard the tale out. "'No. He knows, you see, that's just what is bothering me now. I haven't sifted the matter as yet,' resumed Velchaninoff hotly. "'He must know. He does know. I remarked that fact both yesterday and today. But I wish to discover how much he knows.' That's why I am hurrying back now. He is coming to-night. He knows all about Bagantov. But how about myself? You know how such wives can deceive their husbands. If an angel from heaven were to come down and convict a woman, her husband will still trust her, and give the angel the lie. Oh, don't nod your head at me. Don't judge me. I have long since judged and convicted myself. You see, this morning I felt so sure that he knew all, that I compromised myself before him. Fancy, I was really ashamed of having been rude to him last night. He only called in to see me, out of the pure unconquerably malicious desire to show me that he knew all the offence, and knew who was the offender. I behaved like a fool. I gave myself into his hands too easily. I was too heated. He came at such a feverish moment for me. 
I tell you, he has been bullying Liza, simply to let off bile, you understand. He needs a safety valve for his offended feelings, and vents them upon anyone, even a little child. It is exasperation and quite natural. We must treat him in a Christian spirit, my friend, and do you know, I wish to change my way of treating him entirely. I wish to be particularly kind to him. That will be a good action on my part, for I am to blame before him. I know I am. There's no disguising the fact. Besides, once at tea, it so happened that I required four thousand roubles at a moment's notice. Well, the fellow gave me the money, without a receipt, at once, and with every manifestation of delight to be able to serve me. And I took the money from his hands. I did, indeed. I took it as though he were a friend. Think of that! Very well. Only be careful, said Claudia Petrovna. You are so enthusiastic that I am really alarmed for you. Of course Liza shall now be no less than my own daughter to me. But there is so much to know and to settle yet. Above all, be very careful and observant. You are not nearly careful enough when you are happy. You are much too exalted an individual to be cautious when you are happy, she added with a smile. The whole family went out to see Velchaninoff off. The children brought Liza along with them. They had been playing in the garden. They seemed to look at her now with even more perplexity than at first. The girl became dreadfully shy when Velchaninoff kissed her before all, and promised to come down next day and bring her father with him. To the last moment she did not say a single word, and never looked at him at all but just before he was about to start she seized his hand and drew him away to one side, looking imploringly in his face. She evidently had something to say to him. Velchaninoff immediately took her into an adjoining room. "'What is it, Liza?' he asked kindly and encouragingly. But she drew him farther away, into the very farthest corner of the room, anxious to get well out of sight and hearing of the rest. "'What is it, Liza? What is it?' But she was still silent, and could not make up her mind to speak. She stared with her motionless, large blue eyes into his face, and in every lineament of her little face was betrayed the wildest terror and anxiety. "'He'll hang himself,' she whispered at last, as though she were talking in her sleep. "'Who will hang himself?' asked Velchaninoff in alarm. He will, he. He tried to hang himself to a hook last night, said the child, panting with haste and excitement. I saw it myself. Today he tried it again. He wishes to hang himself. He told me so. He told me so. He wanted to long ago. He has always wanted to do it. I saw it myself in the night. Impossible, muttered Velchaninoff incredulously. Liza suddenly threw herself into his arms, kissed his hands, and cried. She could hardly breathe for sobbing. She was begging and imploring Velchaninoff, but he could not understand what she was trying to say. Velchaninoff never afterwards forgot the terrible look of this distressed child. He thought of it waking and thought of it sleeping, how she had come to him in her despair as to her last hope, and hysterically begged and prayed him to help her. And to think of her being so deeply attached to him, he reflected jealously, as he drove, impatient and feverish, towards town. 
She said herself that she loved her mother better. Perhaps she hates him and doesn't love him at all. And what's all that nonsense about hanging himself? What did she mean by that? As if he would hang himself, the fool. I must sift the matter, the whole matter. I must settle this business once and forever, and quickly. End of chapter 6